Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Martin J. Thompson. Martin makes electronic music that often seems to be talked about in terms of rudeness and etiquette, which is funny because Martin's a lovely bloke. (laughs) But his music, I I don't know why, but in texts that, that I've written and also in reviews I've read, this idea of etiquette seems to come up a lot. I mean, repetition is at the forefront. The textures he uses often have a jagged edge, fill up space. Maybe there's a sense that they're pestering or setting very explicit demands on your concentration on time and space. There are these sliding rhythms that seem to be falling outside of your grasp as a listener and never really seem to come back within your grasp over the six, seven, eight minutes that you are confronted with these sounds. Martin is also involved in the label founder sm-ll.com and also partner label Tapes for Mates. Neither of these labels use artist attribution, so there's no artist name on any of the releases. Something that has provoked a lot of discussion between Martin and everyone really and also myself raises a lot of questions around the economy around music i know martin is um is an anarchist also incorporates principles of agile working into both of those labels so i really enjoy talking to martin about all this stuff and also about listening to music generally essentially i like coming up with different excuses to have a conversation with him And this is another one. I hope you enjoy this one. I really like the three records that Martin picked and there's loads of good anecdotes in there too. Head over to sm-ll.com. Probably the best place to get an idea of what Martin is doing. We also talk about his mastering, causeandcondition.com. And head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for all the usual links there. Attention Magazine is on coffee ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening if you want to chip in a couple of quid to help keep the show ticking but thank you as always for listening and supporting the show i love getting your lovely feedback okay here we go this is martin j thompson on crucial listening Martin, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hello, Jack. Nice to be here. Great to have you. So you're here to talk about three important records, as my guests do. Uh, Before we get into those, I want to ask you about a few bits. I mean, we talk pretty much all the time. So I know there's a lot of things that you've got 
going on at the moment that we could touch on at this point in this early part of the conversation. One thing, though, that does come up a lot between us and also that you flagged when I asked you is mastering. Feels like that you've undergone a bit of a shift in how you're thinking about mastering. I mean, most evident in the fact that we've got causeandcondition.com, which has just arisen recently, which feels to me like more of just a well, I know it is more than just a, a switch from the alias that you're using for mastering and more of a holistic difference in approaching mastering how you think about it. I mean, what's led you to that point of shifting from mastering under your own name or or, or something else to bringing cause and condition into the frame? I think, I mean, it's a, it's a super interesting and kind of challenging question in a lot of different areas, I guess. But the main, I think the main shift has been having to kind of deal with some kind of government stuff with my, my partner's visa and having to deal with money and work, can, you know, the, the idea of like nine to five job and all those kind of things that everybody has to deal with um, and getting, having got lots of kind of quite problematic targets out the way that are kind of, you know, stipulated by the government, which I won't get into, right, yeah. um, it's kind of given me this complete like lift I've like not had those uh challenges to meet anymore I've kind of succeeded if you like and having succeeded in those things think these are things I didn't really want to do or don't but don't agree with but kind of had to do mm-hmm. um uh and and, and and succeeded quite well in them in terms of like if I'm going to have to do this I'm going to if I'm going to have to earn money in this area I'm going to really do well if I'm going to have to work in this industry I'm going to really push it hard because this thing you know getting this visa with, with my partner's obviously incredibly important to me um off the end of that thinking well if I why, why is it that I can do this thing that I fundamentally disagree with and really <laughs> succeed well at it but I'm still hesitant to kind of put myself out there in, in ways, in other ways. And I think the challenge always comes down to the money aspect and how you understand that kind of pathway um, that generally isn't written under the capitalist model. So like, I don't really like the idea of, you know, having to, that it be a profit motive for everything. Um, I think I really value like within the, the sort of music that I listened to and, and the scenes that I got into in the nineties that this was kind of like a very different space that was kind of the opposite of, the pop industry opposite of corporate industry opposite of all that stuff it was community it was people it was finding something in music that really felt it spoke a different vocabulary it was more universal Mm -hmm. and like the challenge of how do you how do you deliver that or how do you create something that captures that but is still having to deal with the inevitability of having to pay the rent yes um and i think through having worked with lots and lots of different artists through the label um, and, you know, having, you know, hung around with different people that have made music or introduced writing music to many friends over Christ, the majority of my life. <laughs> um, I've really enjoyed that, the connectivity part, the understanding, the sharing of uh, interest, the kind of elevating everyone together, the kind of we all benefit if we all just kind of share and it's open. Um, I've really, really, really appreciated that. So Cause and Condition was really the success if you like of finding a way which is a pay what you uh pay what you can model that uh people that are in a kind of niche electronic music space that may or may not be fully understanding of the way the industry is you know having to go after a really high-end professional master and student they might be just someone who's just kind of you know playing around with music for a few months 
um, yeah. that there's there's something really advantageous about going through that cycle of having other people work with your music about collaborating and having that wisdom shared and also knowing that the people that might not have that much experience have also got really valuable wisdom there's a lot of mutual interest there so really having the success of something i didn't want to do and then putting it into a thing give me you know giving me the motivation to put it into something else was was really the was the was the shift moment i guess which i'm having said that out loud i appreciate that's really complicated but it's it was <laughs> yeah it was um it's easy as just suddenly realizing actually this is uh all of a sudden this seems doable it was a light bulb moment if you like it yeah. was um and that that was kind of the shift i think has that enabled a different approach to the actual raw skill of mastering and the reason i ask is i guess a lot of what you're talking about is the framework around the skill but often having to work in ways uh, around money that feel discordant with your values or kind of run contrary to getting the most out of the skill itself often dents the actual just like fun and enjoyment or the ability to like really get into mastering right so has it been a different experience actually physically doing the mastering on your end having moved to cause and condition and sort of rethought the framework around how you do mastering yeah definitely it's it's the whole i guess the equivalent would be doing something because you generally want to do it and understanding what that is mm. versus kind of just going along with the motions because there's a skill you have and it might pay the rent i think there's yeah. a genuine satisfaction and and clarity that suddenly emerged around the particular qualities within certain practices that i really appreciated so within mastering specifically like i've done mastering for for years for my own kind of projects and for for you know i used to co-found and label back in i don't know a while ago with a friend um adam <laughs> and used to do the mastering for some of that as well and it was always a bit it was it was never really seen as mastering as the kind of job if you like it never felt like it was for earning money it was always a sort of self-initiated projects or the projects that you're kind of connected to for mutual friends for example but this actually being positioned as a service there was a moment where I thought how you know what I had done before the light bulb moment if you like how is this going to work because I don't want to be sitting around every day mastering music that I can't stand listening to <laughs> and the, bringing the very world that grinds me which is feeling a, you know uh the inevitability of having to do something to pay the rent be mm -hmm. in my music world as well because this world is valuable because of its universal you know this kind of universal feeling that i spoke about so i think a lot of it comes from my experience with working with agile principles and that you've got many of these um this open way of thinking and that you're not you're not governed by sort of uh industry ideas that you're governed by more a set of tools that allow you to get to a point uh -huh. and you're not necessarily sure what that point is so cause and condition really kind of is attempted to look at that in the same way that we're okay what what do we really need right now for a particular sort of group of us and what is it about mastering you know uh currently within this small niche that might that could be different what is it about all these kind of you know um all these services that are online through apps or you know master yourself with a click of a button what is it about these things that can be advantage and not advantage and just trying to find a space that really enables more interaction and more bespoke services so i think that for me and not having a money money attached to it specifically it mm -hmm. being really open um, and the reality of 
the you know I have to pay rent and I have to eat like anybody else it's uh-huh. not there's a feeling of security there where people think well I don't necessarily know or I'm not sure and that you can come to an agreement through discourse and find what works best for people um, specifically if, if someone hasn't got very much money it doesn't matter if someone has got loads of money it doesn't matter it's really about the conversation and what you're trying to achieve and what you think is valuable which is just completely open so I find that really satisfying on a fundamental level and to be able to kind of apply it to mastering as well and it that has directly changed how I feel about mastering so I'm really excited just to sit down with the equipment and work on something it's been and I'm I think the biggest challenge is I was still falling into the habit of saying oh I need to do some work today and I made this rule for myself (laughs) like it's not it's not work anymore because (laughs) the idea of work is not something I'm interested anymore so yeah, it's a complicated thing. Still going through the learning process in terms of my, you know, my headspace with it. But um, yeah, super, super excited about it. Super excited about it. Great. One other thing I wanted to touch on as well was something that came into my head while I was prepping for this podcast, uh, which is related to the music that you make. So I think we were on Lucia, your partner's radio show, back in like September. And you mentioned at one point that the music that you've been making seemed to be getting harder and harder at that particular point. I'm intrigued to know whether that's still the case, that you feel like your music's heading in that direction, the music you make. And if you've got any thoughts as to why why that inclination started to come in to make like harder and harder music. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably, it goes through phases. Um, I think there's something about the energy in harder music that I hadn't explored for a really, really long time and still haven't really, you know, I haven't really scratched that itch, so to speak, still now. Um, I think, I mean, I definitely think it's it's still going to be pushing in that harder direction. I wouldn't say it's going to keep getting harder and harder and harder. It's not going to get more aggressive and more distorted. It's It's more a case of, trying to find there's a sense of energy that i think that sort of sort of uh, quality of harder music finds that more delicate textures don't uh-huh. um, and uh-huh. i think the energy of harder music seems to find that sort of delicate uh music doesn't so i think there's something in that that i feel is more um impactful that it it kind of takes it takes a little bit more investment from the listener the listener really has to be in a in a headspace that can kind of deal with that sort of energy i think the other thing as well is the he- i kind of listen to a lot of stuff on headphones and i find really hard music through speakers you really have to have it sort of at quite a volume in quite a decent set of system where if it's on headphones you can it's really about that kind of drilling into the inside of your head if you like yes. it's, yeah, really, yeah. it's really a part of what you are yes. um, and i think there's a thing of the kind of qualities you can get at that are really detailed but when that sort of heaviness gets put towards the sounds it kind of sort of heightens that so I guess it's more it's almost like a, a like a caffeine addiction I guess in some way you, you you need a little bit more you find a little bit more um and you just want to draw that out I think the other thing as well there's not there's not anything I'm really hearing that is what I would consider sort of listenable or listeners listening music that um, that's that sort of hardness so much. It's often kind of borrowing from the kind of club scene or dance scene or yeah. maybe from other kind of like obvious sort of uh, genres. 
So the idea of the stuff that we've been exploring that's a really relentless, monotonous, repetitive, sort of almost psychoacoustic, but through a distorted or heaviness is something I've not really heard. So I think that's kind of probably the, been the main sort of driver behind it. As with most of the stuff I make, it's really, I want to hear something that I've not heard. Nice. Well, I'll put some links in the show notes to some examples of that and lots of other stuff that you do too. We've only touched on a little bit there. Um, but let's go on to your important records, Martin. So you've picked three of those. First question for you is whether or not you thought about important and importance in a particular way in order to come up with the list of three records that you did. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even Desert Island. This is more difficult, you know. This is, um, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of, yeah, like the idea of what's important to me it felt like it had to be, and we've kind of touched on this already, that, that idea of a shift in my interest or my, my, my direction in music making. And I think like I've been, I've been making music since I was 10 years old and been interested around it, you know, before, but not really at a kind of critical level, I guess, till, till a bit later. But recognising that music that seemed to suddenly take me in a different direction um, was kind of one definite consideration. Um, and the other consideration was I was kind of hesitant to put certain music in there because it seemed so obvious, but at the same time, did, just kind of tried to ignore it because the everyone's reaction and in, in interest in music is an, entirely different. So I was, totally. I'm kind of hopeful that the, even though the music I've picked is pretty well known, <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe my angle to it isn't as is, is, is interesting at the very least but if it's not interesting to talk about I mean it's not really listening to me anyway, so don't even I mean that was kind of how I got to it amazing well let's hope this conversation is is interesting I really hope so I'm sure not publish be. it <laughs> uh, right so let's go for your first record Martin which one do you want to go for first well the first album would be uh, Frequencies by LFO yeah, yeah. So start by telling me a little bit about why this one's important to you then. Uh, I think this, the, I, I think still this album from a, from a quality point of view in terms of the sounds, this, the kind of quality of those sounds, I've just, there is nothing out there I've heard that even comes close to sounding like this. Yeah. And I would go so far as that the LFO music that came after it that was mainly, you know, um, like with the exception of the few of the singles and stuff that come around the same time as the album, but the albums that come after it that was Mark Bell on his own yes, also did not come close to this album. So they were in a moment, I think, through um, Varley and Bell's collaboration in the early 90s and around the house and sort of dance scene and also the kind of rave scene at its kind of commercial peak, if you like, Yes. tapped into something that was highly a highly experimental refreshing take on kind of quite well-known tropes of that sort of genre and I, even when I heard it I think the first time I heard it um, my brother my older brother had um, had bought it LFO I think got to number I want to say number one but it might have been number two or something it got kind of high in the charts it was quite a well-known track that come out amongst many other really hideous rave tunes at the time <laughs> And this one just sounded like LFO, LFO, which was the single that come from this album, was like, what the hell is this? This is, <laughs> this is out of this world. Um, but I don't think the understanding of why this was so good at the time was really there. It, you got a sense that this sounded different, but we 
kind of have to remember at the time there was so much diversity that was under kind of one umbrella of, the, of say a dance genre or house genre it was really difficult we were still exploring what these sounds were so the fact this sounded so different wasn't too out of place and yet when I think back it still felt quite different and it yeah. was a few years later through buying uh, a, a, an album I think it was Polygon Window and Warp Records I recognized the Warp logo and was thinking hang on a minute I've seen that, that uh -huh. LFO album is on the same label and I think that would have been probably the kind of confirmation, if you like, of this, this, or like the picture was start, you know, the jigsaw puzzle, the picture was starting to make a bit more sense. Um, and revisiting time and time again, this album has got nothing but better and better and better. And I listened to a few clips just before we, we jumped on the call, Jack, and it's just incredible. It's absolutely incredible. The sounds, the, the, the metallic nature of those hats, the, the, the stabs that are kind of craft work-esque stabs, this distortion, through the sample and manipulation and the whole melodic structure, this kind of high riff and then duplicated into a low riff but slower because of pitch sampling and the sampler <laughs> is just amazing. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've tried to rip this album off many times and just given given up. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. How, so so your, 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 your brother got it first and you heard it. How old were you? Um, well, it would have been 91. So uh, what would that be like? From in like pre maybe pre-teens early teens wow. trying to do my math eight, yeah probably like early teens it would have been early teens uh -huh. um, yeah so I think I think LFO the single may have come out before the album I'm pretty sure the LFO yes. single come out before the album yeah so. yeah I, I read that this that single did really really well like better than I think they ever could have expected and they were like right we want to get an album done and dusted by the end of the year like on the strength of why that was so popular so you were then, if it's pre-teens, you're making music around like when you you went from when you were ten. You say so. You were making music, I guess, at the time that you heard this for the first time. Like, what can you remember? Like, what your music making was like up until you heard LFO? Uh, the, so the date the dates definitely get patchy, but I remember. I mean, the early music making would have been inspired by. I mean, we would have been using sort of just a household keyboard from the back of like k's catalog which I, I don't know if that even exists anymore but like a big a bigger version of argos you know you'd, right you'd have yeah a yeah child child's keyboard section i'd have been using keyboards like that um and i you i think one of them had midi and i used music x on the amiga so um that had octa med which had like some tracker software and i was kind of playing around that so a lot of the stuff that i would have been doing before the kind of like rave scene if you want to call it that was sort of inspired by um, me just playing around on equipment. And then Jean-Michel Jarre kind of come in a little bit. I think there was a, there was a Pet Shop Boys rip-off because my brother was into Pet Shop Boys and I kind <laughs> of wrote that with him in mind. Um, and then the kind of warp stuff and LFO come out. Um, I, I, think, I think sort of mid-teens, I managed to have an, a, a bit more equipment and there was definitely some tracks that had sort of hollow bass sounds and sort of spooky chord sequences <laughs> and metallic hats which if you listen to anything i write now that's melodic is basically the same stuff <laughs> from back when i was a preteen. so um yeah definitely had a big a big inspiration um uh, a big influence on that sort of sound yeah for sure mm. i read an article that kind of places this record i don't know how accurate it is but in the context of those early days of warp 
because I, I mean, you may know, I don't know how old Warp was at that point, but the suggestion is that the label was still finding its feet back then. I mean, where did this take you in terms of like your relationship with, with Warp? I mean, how deep did you dive at that point? You mentioned that obviously you recognised the logo on another record. I can't remember which record you said it was, but what did this do in terms of introducing you to Warp as a whole? I think the I think that's a uh, that changed over the years that I've revisited. So I'd say the initial experience with Warp Records through, would have been through this album, um, but I Warp Records that I kind of that you might think of as a label was not really known when this album came out for me anyway. Yeah. Um, so there was definitely stuff that come out before this album. Not many things though. It was like you say, finding its feet. Um, but Warp wasn't a label I knew of. Um, it was just this, the, you know, the cover of the le- of that release is very enticing. There's not a lot on it, is and this, the logo is just kind of small in the corner. But it it was a logo that seemed to mean more than say, you know, Capitol Records or sure. Poly, you know, yeah, Polymer yeah. or whatever. It had something that meant something, and you knew it meant something because of the the emerging kind of um, sort of rave scene, if you like. Um, I think it wasn't until the Polygon Window album that I bought would have been. A few years later, I think, um, I want to say 93, I might be wrong with that, um, and then realising the connection of Warp and then thinking, wait a minute, Warp is Warp is a label that's put out more than just this album I've bought. And I, I went back to um, the LFO album. I didn't actually own this album at that time, this point. out. I, did, I bought the album a lot later, so it was my brother's album. I'd go and nick it from his bedroom for a long period of time. Um, <laughs> And then started, re- yeah, like what you know, Polygon Window, and then all the stuff, the art, the artificial intelligence series, kind of come out a few years after that. So it all kind of started to make a bit more sense, and the reputation of Warp, um, you know, getting their newsletters that we are reasonable people, and the the um, them recalling the LFO release, and and them still being true to themselves, which. And they've probably not done for a while, to be honest. Um, I definitely aren't a warp person or have been for a very, very long time. But that early period is an exciting one because people are, you know, for the exploration, you could hear that yeah. sort of in those early releases. Yeah. 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 And with this LFO release as well, I'm intrigued because, yeah, it has been in your life for about well, 1991. So where are we? Oh my God. Come on, maths. 30 years now. So, I mean, as you say, it's still a presence within your music currently. But how has your relationship with the record as a listener changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, like, sometimes you listen to old music um, after a gap and you, it's, it sort of really sounds like of that era. Um, and the, the, the sounds almost sound different yeah. in some albums that you think, oh, wow, I didn't realize it was that kind of cheesy or that it can sometimes be disappointing yes. or yeah. you hear particular synthesizers and if you you know if you worked or you own that synthesizer you suddenly recognize it differently i think the only thing with the lfo album that comes to mind is it still sounded like i don't know what, what like how it's made you know like i mean i kind of do know because there's been a lot of documentation about it but from a listener's perspective purely and not from a research point there's nothing in it that's obvious that tells you how it's made and when i understand what equipment was used it's just you know i I can only attribute it to mark mark bell's recognized as being incredible with his sound design he's done stuff with bjork and and various artists that's amazing 
but and and Vali always gets sort of overlooked but if you listen to Mark Bell on his own you can hear one half of this LFO album <laughs> some very sonic quality kind of sound designery thing but that sort of almost like rudimentary dance music formula that Vali brought to it at that point is what hits this it's the it's the context of dance music but in this really abstract metallic kind of crunchy format that I think also not to forget that the dance music often followed not only a structural format but a sonic format like everyone was doing trying to make the same kind of records in a way and failing Mm. and you know even you know even Mark Fell kind of says about trying to make house music and failing although he's a lot lot later in that sense but this was not trying to make um, the same music and failing. This was this was what they defined, especially in the opening uh, voice that talks about what is house. It's it's challenging the context of a genre that I had yet to even really discover at that point. And I think that's that opening and that whole kind of idea of presenting the context and how it sounds is probably why it sounds the way it does. And it still just sounds fresh. And for me, it's that energy that I already talked about that comes across in the album that um, often gets missed because, you know, for, for obvious reasons of wanting to be a part of a thing, whereas they seem to be really carving a sound out of probably they just didn't have much equipment and relied on bass and high frequencies and bleeps, you know. Yeah. Um, and the Sheffield sound, so. Yeah. Well, because that's the interesting thing. I, you, I don't have the background, as you know, that you do in this kind of music, but that stark contrast between just low and high and and the sort of resisted urge or maybe as you say it was a technical thing but just not filling in the middle to any like excessive extent and just leaving those two elements there is like really striking and Mm. also as well just i i found some of the like the vocal samples like quite angular there's one song i'm trying to remember what it was is it called we are back it's got this yeah the we are back track yeah. yeah This, like, really distorted, like, blocky sort of vocal sample. I was quite surprised at how, like, angular it felt for a record released in, like, the early 90s. I mean, We Are Back is a, is a track that really stands out on the album as being, like, I think angular is a really good way to describe it. It's very, it's not, it's not jarring. It's just <laughs> no. striking. Yeah. Like, in the context of the album, it is already very striking. We Are Back is, like, a hard right angle to <laughs> and yet landing in the same place it's just it's a, i've got to tell you this beautiful story we put this we put this little music festival on i say music festival as a bunch of us with the pa and and uh, in dorset back when i was growing up <laughs> and um we were it was basically me playing music to a few friends and 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 the, and the rest of the town just not enjoying it and uh, it's being a tourist town seaside town there was a group of people that were there on holiday and and one of them had sent their girlfriend up to me playing the music and they asked they said oh we've we want to play we want to ask if you've got a record but my friend's embarrassed and my boyfriend's embarrassed to ask and you probably don't have it and they i said sure sure what is it and i hate like i don't dj really because i hate <laughs> that whole thing but especially requests they said oh have you got we are back by lfo and it was like wow no okay way. you know and they uh they were phoning up their friends from wherever they came from holding it to the speakers you know by the seaside at night time listening to this track and i think like it's those moments where you recognize a particular track has the power to connect people in this universal language that i mentioned before um and you've really got to have a palette or an or, or a need to find that sort of music or appreciate that music 
um, and recognize those moments that you can share it, you know. And I think when it's in a, you know, when there's, there's nothing wrong with the kind of dance scene as a whole, but when you've got an abundance of similar formulaic music that has something to it, fine, but there's something very special for those things that went out on the edge a little bit and, and tried to redefine things. And I think for me, I'm very much about challenging and redefining everything to my detriment, no doubt. But <laughs> I really, really like that, yeah. And do you have a favourite track on this one? So I had to think if there would be a favourite track. And I think, I mean, I've, 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 I, can, I can say a track that if I had to pick one, I could pick one, but probably Men, uh, Mentok. Uh, uh-huh. is, I think it's Mentok 1, I think, or Mentok it's called. But the, the whole album has a flow that really all the tracks you kind of if you if you have it on um on cd like i did and it probably has this on some of the digital versions you often get the snippets at the end at the beginnings of the next track where they're all kind of glued together almost like this kind of mini kind of mix if you like but it's not mixed so you you there's a real sense of flow that goes through this whole album right yeah it, it wants you you want to listen to the next track and it being enjoying that one as much as you just listened to the previous one but I think the Mentok track um, and track 14 is another one that kind of stand out. They're just sort of Mentok because of the sound qualities and the bass is very distorted and lots of metallic kind of hats. The, the patterns are like there's just a hat on every single step and it's really crunchy. Um, track 14 I like because it's just called track 14 and I, I love that idea. <laughs> that, that really fits me. But yeah, musically probably Mentok, that kind of that first sort of third of the album has a flow that yeah, you could easily argue it's one whole track. The other track that I probably want to point out is the single. Now, often the singles on the album is the one you want to skip because you just get sick of it. Totally, yeah. LFO by LFO is not a track that you ever want to skip. <laughs> you know, so yeah, they're all they're all really good, but Mentox pretty cool too. So. Martin, let's go to your second important record. So are we going chronologically? I think we are, yeah. I think yeah. we are. Cool, great. So that would make this, what, Aphex Twin? Selected Ambient Works, 8592? It is, yeah. Cool. Which is, you, you probably hear like a collective groan of like, but also <laughs> everyone agreeing, you know? Yeah, but, totally. Um, I think this yeah. is where the crowds are really hoping that Martin is interesting. So, um, <laughs> so, so yeah, tell me about why this album is important to you. So I heard, I heard the, I think, I don't know how it's pronounced, Igeopolis, I think it's track three or four, which is this sort of heavy bassline track. Mm. Um, and I heard that track on a late night dance program called BPM, that if anyone in the UK kind of stayed up till like 3am, you got a little insight into the kind of emerging kind of underground music scene, club culture scene and electronic music scene through this BPM program that was originally presented by Dave Durrell and Brenda Tahoy, I think her name, surname's pr- pronounced. If anyone, anyone who's seen that, just their dynamic on screen is hilarious. Um, lots of early interviews with lots of legendary, legendary people um, at their early parts of their career. And, and in between a lot of the 
splicing of the club scene and interviews, they would play like you know new albums and new releases, and they played a snippet of a track from a video release, like a VHS, if anyone remember those, <laughs> called Future Shock. Um, so it's video compilation video. So you've got like nineties um, kind of graphics, the early computer graphics, wow. and some kind of like you know uh, multiple layered video kind of textures. Um, and this track was on there, and it was, and, it, and so this is being played through. Sometimes I'd stay up at three a.m. Sometimes I'd set the timer on our VCR to record this stuff, and I'd watch it on um, the next morning. And pre VHS, the baseline of this, the, so this track was, it's a baseline as the melody. The baseline is kind of like the lead melody, if you like. Yeah. And then there's a kind of an eight oh eight. Well, it's an R eight drum machine, but it's like an eight oh eight drum sounds underneath it so there's a lot of bass there and through vhs tape the whole thing just just, just disappears into crunches <laughs> not by you know design but it's just the format's not going to support it and i had never heard a track that used the bass line as a melody that just seemed to blow my mind yeah uh, so i rushed down to the local woolworths which was for people that don't know was like a shop <laughs> that used to exist that had like music in it and uh and sweets and they had Future Shock on the shelf, which blew my mind because I come from a small seaside town that never had anything. <laughs> and you had Brian Eno on there, Higher Intelligence Agency on there, uh, The Orb, which I'd heard of because they were on everything, always the last track. Um, you had a few other things on there. Um, and uh, you had a pair of like glasses that made you look like, everything looked like you were looking as like a bee, like all hexagons, and you were meant to put these glasses on <laughs> and watch this thing. And that was how I found Aphex Twin. So went and bought the album alongside the Obsession compilation, which I've mentioned to you before. Um, yes, yeah. so, so there was a turning point in realising Aphex Twin and letting go of, like, the kind of rave scene, if you like, which I, the Obsession CD I only bought for one track and it was kind of cut short, the Top Buzz track. But the Aphex thing, I, I listened to it and I didn't like the album apart from that one track. No way. It was like, what is what is this? This is... This is an ambient music because I was kind of the idea of ambient music was kind of quite different. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing. And it was like music that I recognized I kind of wrote, but this was really different and kind of, again, just it, so it took me a few listens. Uh, and I remember my friend, I, me and my friend Matthew had gone to, gone to, I think, Southampton. And I bought this album there um, and I put it on at his house. and I was like, man, I don't know if I like this. And then two days later, I came back. I was like, "You have got to listen to this thing. This is <laughs> this is blowing my mind." Um, so yeah, that was how that was how I found it. What what changed? What, how come you started to like it? I think it was it's a classic case of when you when you're exposed to new music, and it's the things that you think you've learnt about what are the qualities you look for in finding the next piece of music. You know, um, I know, I, you know, my ignorance as a young kid, I know what I'm looking for kind of thing. Yes. But you're constantly yeah. met with these. I mean, maybe less so now. I don't know. I, 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 I don't personally get this as much now myself, but I'm sure people that are finding music for the first time or finding interesting new music for the first time, there's a certain music that really catches or certain albums or releases that really capture them and that redefines what they understood as... I guess acceptable or understood yes. as the the can, you know the question the, the question you'd ask is can they actually can we do that it was yeah. especially from someone yeah. making music can I do that is that are we allowed to do that kind of thing um, so yeah. I think that really just tore the rule book up around 
these things and yet felt so um, familiar because a lot of the sound qualities were sort of similar. I remember I compared it, my, my, my brother, had, um, he, my brother Paul, who had the LFO album, had a, he was doing up a, a Metro in the garage, which he never finished, and it had these huge speakers <laughs> in it. And uh, he was playing Michael Jackson's Bad album, um, which without looking at the dates, must have been around the same time, I guess, yeah, that that come out. I think so. Um, yeah. So he played Michael Jackson's Bad on his Metro's bass bins. <laughs> and, um, and I put in this album as a comparison, and this one sounded really flat and muffled compared to like, you know, a high end production. Yeah. And yet, and yet this album, you know, it, it's, my point is it kind of comes out of the bedroom. It comes out of like yes. this inferior equipment and this kind of quality and the idea that high-end production and the correct ways to master, the correct ways to present sound are not applicable here because this is not the world that we're working in. We're working with experimenting and, and, and trying to redefine stuff. So for me, this really is a, it captures that. Um, in a different way that sort of LFO didn't, you know, it's sort of very muffly and bassy and badly produced. And like, I think Apex Twin even says it was like the, it was recorded on his tape cassette and it had been passed around to all his mates. And, you know, um, yeah. the fact that this is stood up there as one of the best albums ever is, is it, it kind of shows how things can be done. Yeah. I also read in an article that I don't think this is true. Recordings, sound quality has been described as poor due to it being recorded onto a cassette damaged by a cat um but it doesn't sound like cat damage to me it just just sounds like general tape erosion but um again i guess that's an early sort of trinket of just richard d james isn't it just throwing stuff his whole, out there <laughs> yeah his whole his whole thing i think there's i think there's even a track on there it's either that one or polygon window that's got a date oh no it is this of course the 85 to 92 thing yeah that, that that some of this music that was actually that's another really good point the fact that some of this music had been written in 85 was blew my mind um, right i think i think it's a bit of bs honestly because yeah. 99 i think there's only one track on there that couldn't have been written that could have been written in 85 which is the <laughs> ambient one because every single other track has an r8 drum machine on it and if you look oh, at the dates the r8 so drum machine wow. come out like i think 89 or not i think it come out in 89 so but it's beside the point. Yeah. The fact that it's come out in 92 is like balmy, you know? <laughs> it's like if you had to, if you had the fact you had to predate it a few years, whatever, you know? Yeah. So I, I also yeah. think, um, you know, this is someone who's produced a record which has this hazy obfuscation, just blanket in the whole thing. And someone who's then subsequently said that he sleeps two hours a night. This sense yeah. of collapsing time, it's like a dislodged memory, isn't it? Just like I don't know when I, well, how old I was when I made this album. Um, yeah, really the dates nice. get sketchy, don't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you heard the one with the big bass line. I think I know which one you're talking about. I, it's been ages since I listened to this record, but there's one with a very prominent, lovely bass line that I think you're talking about. Um, mm. Is that your favourite, or do you have a, a another track that you would consider? Again, it may be like LFO, where maybe there's not a, a constant hard favourite. And it is an album that flows together very nicely. So that all said, do you have a favourite track? Uh, well, no, you're right. Again, it's a bit like the LFO album. But if I had to pick one, and I mean, the Agiopolis track that I mentioned, the bass line, is the way I found it. But I think the track that always seems to grab me is, I think it's Scotch Key, Seventh Path, which is 
for anyone who knows their track titles, and I'm not one of these people, I had literally had to look this up before the call, but it's this sort of, it's the one that captures this slower pace and sinister quality the best. And there's a particular sound in the first sort of few handful of bars that happens once and it's kind of like um this slow grindy thing and then this dong sound happens and then that dong sound never happens again and i remember um that sound uh when i i was i was a a paper boy at the time and i used to be i was be half asleep you know never knew where i was and that sound used to always make me jump. I'd think I'd hear it from somewhere else or someone said something near me or something. Yeah. Um, and I kind of felt that, that the idea that an artist would kind of introduce this really nice kind of quality in a track but only use it once at the time felt, you know, because everything was very kind of formulaic and structured and build-ups or whatever it might be. And this was, this was constantly playing with the ideas of what structure can be and what sounds should be or could be um i think that track kind of captures that eeriness and edginess that i really really latch onto. so i think there's a lot of um but but having said that the whole album does that but that one really kind of does it does it quite well there's a few on there that do that quite well but i think yeah scotch key seventh path is um it's one of those that you put on and you probably don't know it by title but you certainly recognize it yeah it's a really awesome track yeah you mentioned Polygon Window as well as another one that you ended up picking up. I mean, what has your relationship with Apex Twin been like since discovering this record? How has it changed? Um, since since discovering this album, Apex Twin has been probably the most inspirational artist for me. Um, wow! Up until up until Come to Daddy come out, I think Come to Daddy post Come to Daddy, I kind of slowly checked out. Um, which is the kind of turning point for for me that kind of went into that kind of more drum and bassy kind of drill and bassy kind of territory. Yeah. And the more complexity seemed to be the name of the game and the production kind of quality started changing. It got a bit more funky. Um, it was way more palatable. It became way more popular. So anything, I mean, not that you should use popularity as a metric, but I have to question if a lot of people like something, it's probably not very good because <laughs> it means that it's more palatable, it's more accessible. And I think, like, for me, that early stuff tends to be, you know, for the people that are into the latest stuff, and, it, you know, you're, you're a child of your time, so you, everyone has their entry point, like of I course, said before. yeah, yeah. But for me, that the, the, the qualities that were really important to me were kind of evident up until kind of post comes weren't evident post comes daddy but were in abundance in the early early releases i think that's probably my relationship with his music so polygon window was just more of in a way more of uh 85 to 92 in some respects um right and then this this sort of stuff that come out afterwards was entering into the latter part and change transition but was still in its own right you know um were very very different like i care because you do and the richard d james album they're all kind of quite crazy and groundbreaking of their time but then at some point it just was more of the same sort of stuff incredible but the interests were different and obviously i i'm growing up as well and i'm listening to different stuff as well so you know um for me it's not i i'm not necessarily loyal to an artist just because they're still making stuff i don't think 
they've they're the least they're the least of my interest really it's what they make um otherwise i'd still like richie horn stuff and i definitely don't um oh yeah that was the other thing i was going to ask and this ties into a similar theme which is you mentioned actually when you sent over your list that there's been a re-release with bonus tracks i couldn't find it anywhere but tell me about that yeah, so they it was a few years back. I think Warp. So Warp didn't originally release this. It was uh, an RNS Records release. So this was before eight five to ninety two was come out before Aphex signed to Warp, or at least there wasn't a release out with Warp that I'm aware of. So I've got a feeling from if my memory serves me right. Aphex Twin was licensed to RNS. That's why he released Polygon Windows, Polygon Window because he didn't have the rights ah, with Warp at that point. Right. So when 85 to 92 was re-released under Warp Records, um, yeah, they added a couple of tracks in there. And I don't know what the tracks are called. They're in the middle, and I think there's one at the end. They kind of sound a bit more like... If anyone who follows Aphex Twin has heard the SoundCloud stuff that come out, there's a period of time that's kind of a bit more funky, but sort of the stuff that wasn't released, I guess. And it sounded like of that era, maybe like I Care Because You Do kind of era but maybe a bit later. And it was kind of in amongst it. And I- Weird. Yeah, I was kind of like, I didn't know, I don't know. I'd be really curious to find out what the reasons were, but I don't know other than let's make it appealing. I don't know. Like why, what the reasons were to put those tracks in there. So I'm super fascinated on a curatorial level, but like, I don't know what they offered. (laughs) And, And maybe there were tracks. I don't believe there were tracks that were knocking around that were admitted originally. They felt very much bolt ons. So yeah, and it really, it kind of really, it skewed the flow in terms of like the sounds were just different, the production was different. Um, it felt very bonus tracky, but in the middle, in it the was middle. kind of odd. That's ridiculous. Yeah, one in the middle, and I think one near the end. Yeah, it was just like, what, what's going on here? You know, those that sort of stuff's always fascinating when you're really used to, um, and it's something I am used to, especially when a lot of the stuff you might have had on cassette tape, you might have the end cut off or. You know, yes. you've never heard the. You know, you're kind of very familiar with this jarring sort of sensation, but this one was a bit of a bit of an odd one. Yeah. So if you can, yeah, if you can get the, if if anyone listens to the original RNS one, um, or just you know looks it up and just deletes those tracks if they've got the warp one, um, <laughs> then that's that's, nice. that's the better listen in my opinion. Wicked. <laughs> Martin, all right, we've got one more important record. So what is it? So this is the Definitive Ambient Works Volume 1 by Pete Namluk, yes. which is a collection compilation, if you like, of a lot of his ambient stuff that was scattered around various early releases that were on Fax Records when this was put out on Rising High Records back in 93. And this is all his aliases right on this compilation is that right yeah like i think some i mean from what i understand collaborations that pete namluk had was p 
Pete Amlet with someone, not the someone with Pete Amlet. Pete Amlet was the kind of driving force right. behind a lot of the collaboration stuff, as I understand it. So this is predominantly Pete Namluk under aliases and if there are other people in there I think the opening track was a live recording with Dr Atmos and somebody else I forget um, that they might be turning a turning a oscillator here and there but I'm pretty sure it's predominantly just Pete Namluk stuff so it would have been like um, you know the ambient tracks that would have been alongside some pretty pretty full-on trancey kind of tracks that I definitely weren't and not really into but the ambient stuff is in incredible. If you need an introduction to Pete Namlock, this is the album that, well, this is the album that I was, my first album to his stuff. Yeah. And how did that come about? How did you discover this one? I'm pretty sure. I, actually, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm, I'm, I want to put money on that the, the, my friend Matthew, who I went shopping with on that day, <laughs> maybe... A subsequent day or around the same day, he bought this album. So I'm pretty sure he bought it before I did. Um, and I think he probably read about it in like, I think it might have been Eternal magazine. There was like a rave magazine or might have been Mixed Mag or something. One of the one of the magazines that no one liked buying, but you just did. Um, and it was it was probably in there as this new album. album. And I, um, we... Like Mixmaster Morris was kind of like a known artist and DJ at the time. And there was, you know, he had like the Rising High logo sort of bleached into his hair. It was kind of Rising High was a big, there was a kind of big thing um, with a lot of the kind of trance and techno music that was around at that time. And a lot of the early rave stuff that had come out on Rising High. So we knew, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's it. Remember now, we knew of Rising High Records quite early on because they had like, you know, the hardcore EP and a lot of the really old hardcore rave music that Casper Pound, who sort of run it, would be kind of creating. Right. And then this was sort of Rising High's kind of second chapter, if you like. And it was like, the, the, you wouldn't expect ambient music on Rising High record. You'd expect like breakbeat, hardcore sort of rave stuff. Again, like it was, um, I bought it straight afterwards because it was, um, it was just incredible. Mm. Um, even he, he bought the, he bought the jacket, the Rise and I jacket. I bought the Rise and I record bag, <laughs> um, which, uh, some, uh, somebody bought some music from us recently, actually, uh, randomly mentioned it in an email and sent me a photo of his original Rising High record bag as well. Wow. So nice. still, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that was, that was, that was the introduction to it. Yeah. And you mentioned that these records all had some sort of shift for you or some sort of shift was instigated in terms of how you thought about music or, or how you went about your own music what did that look like for for the definitive ambient collection yeah i think i think the cover was a big part honestly it was this sort huh. of very black cover with this kind of like molecular kind of atom like structure built off the logo the definitive ambient collection volume one was in a very enticing title as well um it just sounded like serious you know um but <laughs> yeah. also kind of quite like ravier like that so in it's sort of in the rave era there was the thing called the chill out room so like the idea was you'd go clubbing and then when you're i mean i very i never went clubbing really but you go clubbing and then you just need to chill out somewhere you go out into the chill out room and there'd be all this kind of music played that's really ambient and there'd be these whales like sonic you know, <laughs> whale yeah. sounds and all that kind of stuff and this kind of 
seem to kind of come out of that from a listener's point of view. Obviously, it, it obviously isn't quite like that's how that is. This album emerged, but it certainly um, felt like that for our naive ears at the time, and it also felt very very new and it felt like what ambient should feel like it felt very ambient like this is serious ambient music so there was very little rhythmical or very little beat at all yeah but it was also um very musical and very engaging um and just very kind of ominous um and sort of ethereal in some places but um and just lots of really incredibly lush qualities and it was very tied to um, this idea of outer space and um, kind of d- thinking on different planes and that the kind of shamanic stuff kind of come out of all that era, not from Pete Nabok himself, but like that whole kind of space of engaging music in different ways, like psychedelic drugs and all this kind of like narrative. But this was sort of like almost imagination, otherworldly and kind of staring to the stars and... Um, and it dealt with kind of more elemental, like element levels, so like water and air and those sorts of qualities. So it felt, it just felt very different. So whereas LFO felt, you know, stu- you know, sort of out of the dance scene, but redefining it, Aphex Twin felt like, as it was to some guy on, on the arse end of the UK in his bedroom, this felt like integrated, but also elevating a whole experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, incredible. And I, you know, it's just... This this was a, this was a turning point again in that sort of experience of what music could be and how you could connect to it and how you could feel about it and again just open up the doors. Also, I think the other th- the other significant thing about it is it's got a very unique sense of pace and rhythm to it. So he uses these sort of uh, delays that like sort of a ping pong delay on his sounds and they're very slow. So you've got this kind of almost dub-like pace to everything. Totally. Um, that's very unique. So yeah, absolutely beautiful album. I still, I bought this on LP, like the original on Discogs for like a ridiculous amount of money. <laughs> oh, right. Well, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like 30 quid, but you know, 30 quid on an album that I, you know, wasn't 30 quid when I wanted it. <laughs> it seems a lot, but yeah. Um, yeah, all the stuff that he put out, Dreamfish and Air and all those ones. But this was this was the this was the intro that had lots of those different stuff on it. Yeah. So this one, as you said, had an enticing title, the definitive ambient collection. We've talked about Aphex Twin, the selected ambient works. Was the word ambient a real draw to you at that time? Was there something happening specifically within this notion of ambient that you were attracted to? I think so. I think ambient would have been the genre or the the style, if you like, that was replacing or challenging kind of the normal music that was around at the time. So normal for me would have been the kind of rave scene. So if you want to look at the glossiest, sugariest end of that, that would have been the prodigy and all the stuff that come out when they did their thing. Yeah. Like, you know, Charlie and Trip to Trompton and all that tripe. Um, then there was there was lots of kind of other stuff that come around then there was the kind of underground kind of DJ kind of culture stuff that a lot of that music you didn't really know or I didn't where we were because we were on, in the arse end of the seaside town know really who were the people behind it and this was kind of like a step away from that it was kind of like I said before like this is the this is almost like the bedroom artist this is sort of the listener's experience um, and at this point, artificial intelligence hadn't really happened. So the right. idea that this intelligence, 
label that was kind of label put on things a bit later hadn't really happened. So this was kind of more a sort of a step away from even the popular stuff of the underground music, if you like. So I think that ambient label you could probably swap out for, you know, electronic music in a few years' time, like in yes. 95, 94, you know, quite quickly. But having said that, the ambient quality was very um, different to electronic music that that kind of, it's a very different pace. It lowers your heart rate. You know, you've got very different sound qualities. Even even like shoegaze stuff now is like not, it's not the same deal. This is kind of, no. you know, uh, oscillator sweeps and, like I said, whale sounds and water and, but not in a kind of field recording quality in a kind of put you in a different space sense, you know. In fact, we had, I've had Pete Namluk feature on the podcast before. Like we did, um, really? Kush Aurora picked Alien Community. Have you heard those ones? I haven't. I think, I think that's a bit later, but no, I, I've, I haven't, no. Yeah. Because do you know what? It was interesting because, um, these sounds were immediately like triggered a memory for me of something I'd heard in relation to this podcast. And Alien Community is Jonah Sharp and, um, Pete Namluk, I think it's like two hours, and it, the, the 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 sort of ping pong delay and the pacing you talk about on this one is very present as well on that collaboration with Jonah Sharp. So, yeah, really interesting stuff. Mm. But um, obviously, Pete also you run Fax Records, right? Was that on your radar at all at that time as well? I think only because it was in the liner notes, like... Right, right. Um, wouldn't have been otherwise, no. And I've never bought anything from Fax. I oh, think wow. this was... Yeah, no, still haven't, never, because it's just sort of this sort of... Um, I'm not sure why. I guess I I did re- more recently revisit or, re- tr- you know, visit the stuff I hadn't heard before in the hope that I'd find sort of similar stuff to what we'd found. Right. Um, so, like, the albums for me were, you know, Definitive Ambient Works, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and Dreamfish and Air and Silence were the ones that we kind of had in circulation. And I kind of went on the hunt for more of the stuff that I'd miss, and I haven't found anything that I'd have and enjoy now that I hadn't already had. So Fair, yeah. it felt like the selection that Casper Pound and that lot had took from facts and presented was perfect to my taste <laughs> um and the other stuff kind of didn't quite quite grab me i mean i you know full respect to pete namluk but it was kind of like oh i can see how this curatorial kind of role and this repackaging and presenting really played a lot a bigger part than i probably appreciated at the time um yeah but yeah i mean facts was never really on my radar um i think there was almost the labels that were so obscure you know like to get the really obscure label was back back in the early nineties in 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 Swanage Dorset was like you kind of had to know your stuff and I I didn't come on I didn't, leave my, I didn't leave my bedroom Jack so <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair um, the other thing I wanted to ask about as well and you mentioned actually that these different aliases are potentially um, references to different collaborations with different people albeit with Pete Namluk at the helm but what I found very interesting is so I, I listened to this on the Bandcamp. And each track is listed as as being by a different alias. His energy is so potent throughout this entire thing. And it's very consistent quality that's throughout all these tracks. They don't deviate that much from each other to the extent where you're like, oh, blimey, we're somewhere else now. I know Mm. as well that you kind of work with with 
with different aliases within your music. And, I, you know, I think with solo projects, I always find it so fascinating to consider, like, different aliases from a specific solo artist. What's the point when you're working under a specific alias that you're like, right, I need to break out of this box now and start working under a, a new one? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, it's interesting you you kind of draw the parallel or the comparison with Namluk and aliases because I've, I've have had this thought before that the, the purpose of aliases for me, how much previous, you know, my exposure to early music and, and just kind of what I understand of that space is for me now. Um, does, you know, does Pete Namlook's multiple aliases have any influence on me or Aphex Twin's different alias have any influence on me, for example? You know, I know when I visit a Discogs for, you know, finding someone's catalogue and I see an abundance of different aliases, like Richie Horton's a good example. He's got so many aliases, <laughs> I, I don't know what they are. Um, the, that does kind of give me a sense of the era. Like, there seems to be often like a purely functional reason. Like, it's yes. that there's stylistically, there hasn't been the artistic or list, general listeners' understanding of a particular sound or style having had emerged yet that warrants it being under the same name. Yep, totally, yeah, totally. Um, there's, there's probably like the, maybe there's something about the early labels trying to do contracts and trying to work like traditional labels and like oh i've licensed my name to here and you can't use it there's, there's undoubtedly some of that yes there's the, there's the compilations as well like having a track licensed to a compilation as those the kind of legal kind of stuff that that happens so a good a good comparison would be when drum and bass like in jungle and then intelligent drum and bass and then jump up and then you know or like techno and then tech house and then house and then garage and all these kind of genres started emerging there was a there was a narrative that emerged in the sort of mid to late 90s that was that there's a, an abundance of saturation there's a saturation happening and there was a lot of artists and djs talking about this idea of saturation and that all these different subgenres are and that it kind of it's in essence kind of went and this isn't a criticism of this but in essence it would be like I'm using 808 hats, so I'm making different a different genre to you, basically doing the right. same pattern, but on a 909. <laughs> so it, it was it was kind of almost that basic, and uh, I think it was probably just artistic expression, wanting to separate yourself, and you know, but you know, not forgetting that using using an 808 drum machine was kind of like oh, using an 808 drum machine can't you know you're using presets like there's there's docu you know there's radio interview with Aphex Twin going on about not using an 808 like that's some massive thing and right. it's kind of weird to hear it now but but it kind of was back then like you're using the same drum sounds as everybody else so there needs to be something more so there was that look for something more and i think aliases probably were a way of kind of compartmentalizing and a sense of progress emerging so that's definitely in my dna i think how i probably use aliases now well to start off with i don't use aliases anymore i was gonna say yeah but <laughs> yeah we've just literally done away with the whole thing <laughs> like no no name no credit like done with this um for, for which for a reason that's probably warrants a whole other pro uh, program but um yeah when there was aliases there was a kind of feeling where it was a it was a it was a very different sort of sound it was kind of like the pock kind of sound was sort of 
And these, I wouldn't say these were sounds that I personally felt that were mine. They were entities in their own right that could have been used for anyone. It was always kind of like, it was like a project. Right. So if you wanted to take that project, you could, in theory, use that name. It was not that that ever happened. But the POC was kind of like this cleaner, dubby, Nord synthesizer sound, right? And then the, you know, there was a POC EP that come out on, um, on an Epic Records, a really small label uh, run out of Japan, which I highly recommend checking out they very rarely release anything i'm not sure if they're entirely running still but they still have their band camp so there's a pathways ep on that and that was under the POC name for example and but it was like that was for me felt odd because it was very obviously dubby and it was you know it was using nord but it was a different nord and it's like oh can i use the same name it's, <laughs> it's just bizarre so that's probably in there um the typeface thing was like more repetitive it was a different project like this repetitive thing and I tried to find a way to connect it to typography and, and basically felt like that didn't conceptually work at all. It felt forced and probably was. Um, so, it's, yeah, you definitely kind of have... But I felt those aliases ended up compartmentalising the whole approach too much and that right. I couldn't allow myself to think in different ways. And I, I ended up thinking either in this box or out of this box. So I can only assume these artists that have had an abundance of those aliases initially probably had a similar creative struggle perhaps like a, you know, a headspace that needed to be compartmentalized to kind of allow themselves the creative flexibility. And maybe Pete and I, I mean, Pete and I's got so many aliases on that one thing. Yeah. And as you say, they all kind of sound like the same thing. Um, like he's got an alias, has he got an alias called Four Voice or, or something? I oh think. yeah, something, um, yeah, yeah. I think I saw that, yeah. Which is just him, I think, playing around with a, I think it's an Oberheim Four Voice synthesizer. I, I'm guessing, I don't know. Like, you know I mean, it's, it seems pretty like, I use this synth, so I'm so going to change it. a new name. name, wow, yeah. I don't know. My last question for you, Martin, is about how music comes into your life now as a listener. Like, what are the main ways in which you kind of consume, buy and listen to music? So I barely, I rarely buy music, new music very, very often at all now. Um, if I, well, actually, that's completely false. <laughs> I do buy music, but I typically buy it because it's a friend making music I want to support. It's, it's, it's for different transaction. It's like I, I sort of buy for the algorithm to some degree. You're right, yeah, yeah. Or I buy to support to some degree. Um, that's not the rule for sure, but there's some like, there's a, also there's a need to buy it because I feel there's been many times where I've not bought something out of fear because like I might have mentioned this before, Jack, but like it might be such a good and important album. I do not want it even in my home because it will just mess with my mind because it's too good. So there's a, definitely a case where I don't buy stuff like Autaco. I don't buy their music anymore. It's just, what's the point? You know, it's like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want them in my head anymore. You know, like I, you've, Wait, you, why you not? took over my brain in the 2000s. <laughs> I think like certain artists, Ortec is a good example that 
you kind of just end up trying to make all tech and music right and it's okay. just like it's just it's just destructive yeah for, at least for me yeah so i find there's a definite point where i deliberately don't buy stuff and there's more there's probably more periods in the period in the time that i've listened to music that i've not bought specifically um and when i have bought it's felt like um it's felt like Oh, like the only analogy, and it's it's pretty accurate. You're at a, you're at a friend's wedding, and there's a side table full of really kind of naff sausage roll kind of type food, right? And you're not hungry, but you just eat, <laughs> you just keep eating this stuff, and because that's where you are, right? That's what you do. And I, there's a period where I've done that. I've just bought the new you know new Ninja Tunes record, and I've bought the new whatever, and I've that music just doesn't stand up very quickly like time doesn't even pass that much and it's already kind of gone so i find i'm a, a bit more selective in that regards i try to engage in music like it's less about the purchasing the put the stuff i do buy is stuff that maybe is broken or worn out so like like i said before i bought the pete alex stuff on vinyl because um i really have been enjoying playing vinyl again recently it's just a whole listening experience that I've kind of somewhat forgotten about. So I've been doing that and some stuff like some of the early warp stuff, the um I think it's BMG publishing they used used some like cheap glue. So all the warp stuff is basically falling apart. <laughs> so like I might, you know, buy some of that occasionally. But typically I don't buy reissues that often because I feel like the purchasing it now versus purchasing it purchasing it then is a very different purchase. Yeah. So but you know buying early Orteca stuff just doesn't tempt me because I'm like I've kind of it's incredible the early stuff for me is amazing but it's like it was it's why I don't want to buy it again like I want to you know I don't know it's a bit of a weird weird one that yeah um, totally I think most music I consume at the moment is through the mastering work and um the label and demos not that we really like the idea of demos but often you're sent sort of demos um, and like collab, you know, collaborations and experimentations and just kind of more community-based stuff, which I find quite cool. Like I was playing around with some of my friend's stuff today, just so I've been listening to his beats and ambient sounds and um, listen to Lucia's stuff, my partner's stuff occasionally when she's making that. I think that stuff is what ticks me by. And, and most, mostly, probably my own stuff, to be honest. Like, yeah. I like to just submerge myself in my own sonic world because if it kind of got to an age where I can probably knock out something that fills that void that couldn't be filled when I was a kid, you know, so I just make it. <laughs> Wicked. All right, Martin, well, thank you very much. It's been awesome. Uh, really appreciate you coming on to talk about your work and these three records. It's been ace. It's been really nice chatting to you, as always, Jack. It's been really cool revisiting these albums um, and rummaging through my memory <laughs> and seeing what, what makes me tick. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.